AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the crop insurance industry. With increasing commodity prices, higher price volatility, and rising input costs, America's farmers and ranchers are relying on crop insurance more now than ever before to provide individualized protection and to secure operating loans. Protecting 256 million acres of farmland and 350 commodities across the U.S., crop insurance is the primary safety net for many farmers, enabling them to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. Crop insurance, providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. And now, AgriPulse Open Mic. John Dardis, welcome to AgriPulse Open Mic. Ken, thank you for, for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to our discussion and uh, delighted to hear you visited Ireland and that you're now uh, an ambassador for, for what we do back home. Please get a lot of people to travel back to us. Well, certainly uh, you send a lot of people out. It's proper for us to send a lot of people back there. I think uh, 46 million Americans claim they are of Irish descent, you're absolutely right, Ken, and, and you know, one of the most exciting things for me as, as a farmer and as someone who's passionate about the business of agriculture is we've got this huge community in America because once upon a time we were hungry, and now what we do in agriculture is has to be the story, the story of innovation in Ireland. You are the agricultural attaché at the embassy in Washington, D.C. You also say you're a farmer. Can you tell me about your farming operation? Yes, sir. I am a fifth-generation wheat farmer back home. Um, once upon a time, well, I'm the first generation that doesn't have cattle, so uh, we, we changed our business. But uh, I'm farming about 30 miles south of Dublin on the River Liffey, and uh, I'm a wheat breeder by training, courtesy of University College Dublin and sometime in North Carolina State University. What's your role with the embassy in the United States uh, as far as agriculture? So my role, I think, with the world we live in nowadays, my role is all about trade, uh, helping our product uh, move to the U.S. We have a, a strong market here, um, particularly on, obviously, on the alcohol side, but uh, dairy coming in behind that, and just uh, making sure that, that that product gets access, making sure um, the, the, the system runs smoothly. And I spend a lot of time on a, on a personal interest as well on food security. So that alcohol product, it's not straight ethanol. It's rather high-grade ethanol, isn't it? <laughs> yes, sir. It's a, it's a, it's a high-value product, and it's, uh, Irish whiskey is, is the fastest-growing drinks category in the world. So we're, we're pretty proud of it at the moment, and we need you guys to keep supporting us. Let's move to another area on trade, because this is uh, right down the line that I think is most important for people to understand We've been talking about this Trans-Pacific Partnership and how that we could increase trade there, but there is rumor that the TTIP negotiations or Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership might also have some success, although I have to say our track record with trade with Europe has not been good in most areas. Do you think that TTIP possibly could take down some barriers in our trade with Europe? I think sometimes in agriculture you need to step out of, of what we're doing and, and maybe the long-running battles we've been in and, and think about the bigger picture. And, and really the bigger picture is that economic growth both in the U.S. and the EU is, has been pretty stagnant. Um, coming from Ireland, we've, we've had our particular difficulties um, 
particularly for young people back home, the message has got to be a more positive one. So really, Ken, I think we have very little option but to to make something happen here. And it's uh, in particular with Ireland's interest, we have a huge U.S. investment into Ireland. We have more combined foreign direct investment from the U.S. than the BRIC country, BRIC country blocks. Um, and similarly, coming the other way, we are uh, a significant investor in this country. So from an Irish point of view, this makes sense. Uh, from an EU point of view, I think we've got to do something. Uh, we've got to do something different. And ultimately, I think a lot of what's happening on both TPP and TTIP is about engaging further east and, and setting a, what people like to call a gold standard. But if you like the, the rules of the games, so I think we've got to do it, Ken. One of the challenges we've had is that the European agricultural policy and the European social policy seem to be melded together to the point that you can't base things on science and you can't uh, get trade barriers taken down because of economics. Yeah, uh, a lot of my time is spent uh, myth-busting in the USA, but um, I mean, I'm not going to lie, we, we have particular uh, SPS issues that are going to make this very difficult. SPS is sanitary and phytosanitary, so basically animal and plant health and any issues that fall within those that are barriers to trade. Um, first, first thing I'd say is we, we do need leadership here. We do need uh, to change the record on what we've been doing. But there are particular issues where the U.S. criticism would be that they are not science-based back in Europe. I think uh, possibly the, the piece that isn't played here is that we also have our concerns on the U.S. side that are not science-based. Uh, for example, the Irish interest in the BSE rule is, is our big issue here at the moment, uh, clearly not a science-based uh, process. Um, what I don't want to see happening, though, is exactly what I'm doing now, getting into a, a, a tit-for-tat. I think we've got to change the record on what we're doing. Um, having said that, if you look at things like biotech or, or like certain technologies in the beef industry, it's going to be very difficult to overcome them. And I think what, what people need to understand is the industry I've grown up in back home. You look at issues like the, what happened with, uh, with BSE. Um, you look at dioxins. We just roll from, from, uh, from problem to problem sometimes, and, and it devastates us. And the consumer in Europe is so connected to what we do, um, it's transformed our industry. It's not an easy transformation to go through. Uh, it's going to hurt for a while, but what we do now, particularly in Ireland, I mean, we are the fourth biggest net exporter of beef in the world, and most of that is to the EU market. Uh, we do about 12% of infinite milk formula. These are all highly susceptible to consumer sentiment, so we've got to be out in front of that. And, and I really believe that we can have a discussion where we both learn from each other. Let's talk beef a little bit more. I did note that you have grass that grows nine months a year, if not more, in Ireland, and certainly you can merchandise that through beef. Are you getting any challenges from shipping into other parts of Europe in the way you're handling your cattle or the way you're feeding your cattle? Welfare is a concern, most certainly. Um, and again, our, our industry has no, cho no choice but to respond to that because we export 80% of what we produce. So we, we've got to be per perceptive to that. I, I suppose the challenge in, in welfare issues is the cost that it puts on our producers. Therefore, we target the high-value cut market across Europe. And in many of the, the leading markets like the UK, like France, like Germany, we come in as the second beef product after the domestic product. So it's, it's always high value. Um, I wouldn't say that we have overly uh, 
too many issues where we where we market our product is seen as green, which is our image across the world, I suppose. Uh, but earlier in the year, we, we we did have an issue, which was horse meat. Um, interestingly, that was a fraud issue, as opposed to anything else. But what we're seeing now is that as a result of Ireland discovering that issue, our product, our high-value cut product sales have actually increased. Our export market has uh, gone up, which is a very interesting outcome and kind of to us is uh, demonstrates to, to our, the people we supply that we are good at what we do and we know what we're doing. Well, that came true in the comments that we had from the Irish uh, dairy industry that their um, claim that appeared to be correct was that Ireland produces 1% of the world's milk, but you have 15% of the world's infant formula market. So there must be something you can read into trust from those percentages. Yes, and I think, you know, when you're in the business, you know that the gold standard of food safety is infant milk formula. Uh, We all know that from what we've seen happening around the world. The really exciting thing about what we're doing in Ireland, Ken, is that uh, we have a plan, uh, a cunning plan for world domination, I like to say, uh, called Food Harvest 2020. And with, with milk quotas going, our plan is to increase our dairy output by 50% in the next six years. Uh, so you can see how that will lead into the infant milk formula. You can see how that will support what we're doing on uh, cheeses, on butters, um, and also on the high-value product we're sending around the world as well. We're very excited about this. Well, I spoke with the Holstein Friesian Association while I was there, and um, they went into detail of how much better cow's milk is if the cow is fed on grass rather than on grain. Is that a real or just a perceived improvement in the quality of the milk? Uh, It's funny. When when I talk to people in the U.S. and I show them, we have the number one imported butter into the USA, Kerrygold. Uh, If you look at that product, it's a different color than what you see here. Now, when you grow up on a, on a dairy farm, there's a certain amount of uh, sentiment attached to the fact that butter used to taste like buttercups because there were buttercups in, in the field. Uh, we happen to believe that the product of a grass system tastes better. Um, I'm sure if you're feeding grain, you probably think differently, but I mean, at the end of the day, our product is doing the business on the market. And uh, again, uh, having the green image, having the uh, grass-fed system uh, backs that up. Let me move ahead in the uh, potential for the United States to sell more of our beef products or other products into Europe. Um, should we ever expect that the hormone ban will be lifted by the EU? I think two of the major stumbling blocks I mentioned already, uh, biotech and uh, hormones is the other one. Um, on, the, on the hormone side of things, uh, I'm looking at it maybe a little bit selfishly from an Irish point of view, I really don't think we're going to see much movement on that. I think the consumer in the EU does not want hormones in meat. Now, a lot of this can depend on how you ask the question uh, to the consumer, but the world we live in back home, I can't see it happening. What is happening for the U.S. at the moment is a market that is currently about 48,000 tonnes for uh, for beef that is um, raised without hormones. Um, I'm sure the U.S. will look for uh, an increase in that quota. Um, And I know talking to U.S. folks who supply the market, they have a similar philosophy to Ireland that if the consumer wants a product with no hormones, well, then let's give them a product with no hormones. Um, To be honest, Ken, on that one, I I think it's going to be very difficult to see any shift in Europe on it. 
One of the things that the United States has a challenge with in all of these areas is what is invoked sometimes by the EU countries called precautionary principle, meaning that if you can't find anything wrong with it scientifically, you still say you won't take it because it just might not be safe, and we stop negotiations right there at that point. Uh, do you think that is realistic uh, to continue to fly that flag in the future? I think there's two points on it, Ken. I think, firstly, in the case of hormones, uh, there is an EFSA opinion which um, more or less requires more information uh, and more data. Um, more broadly, on the precautionary principle, I think understanding the dynamics of 28 countries around the table in Brussels and, and reaching agreement uh, is an incredible achievement by the Commission. Um, the precautionary principle originated out of the environmental side of the, the world in Europe. Um, now, again, a misunderstanding, I suppose, that I deal with is that in a lot of cases, EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority, do a review, provide that review to the technical committee, so in the case of biotech, um, and that's where it can get a little bit more difficult, and that's where often the precautionary principle is invoked where uh, concerns exist. Um, that's not to say that products are not being approved. They are being approved. And, you know, I always say if you want to look to uh, a successful outcome on some of this, it's the feed industry where we have been importing GM-derived products. It's labeled. It works. The farmer can decide if they want to buy it or if they don't want to buy it. Uh, the, the discussion on the food side has been much more difficult. I think the change in all of this, Ken, will come with um, uh, possibly a, a development on the small grain cereal side. If you step back and look at Europe, and certainly Ireland, we don't grow corn and soy, so it, you know, it's, it's easier to, to stay out of it from that point of view. Ireland is supporting the, the EFSA uh, opinions on, on GM. We support the science of what they're deciding. Um, but at the moment, there is nothing on the market from a GM point of view that we grow. Final area, and that is in your own country of Ireland, you have rather small farms. Do you see that changing and do you see any prospect that young people may be able to go into farming in the future in Ireland? Listen, I'm passionate about this industry. Um, what I find really interesting is the similarities. The similarities between the U.S. and the EU, the huge amount of trade we have. And often when I ask people you know, to list positives and negatives between EU and U.S., they only know the negatives. Uh, on farming back home, there is a massive feel-good factor at the moment. Our exports are doing the business the same as the U.S. Uh, for example, we have um, a, a program for post-high school kids called a Green Cert run through an organization called CHAGISC, which is our Agriculture and Food Research Institute. We've gone from having 600 kids enrolled in that uh, during the Celtic Tiger boom back home to having 1,600 now. Uh, we don't have enough places for the amount of kids interested in our business and our industry. Um, a general feel-good factor about it, um, and long may it last, because I think there is a feeling that during the boom years, our industry maybe, maybe took, uh, was seen possibly as a, as a sunset industry. Clearly now it is not. We've got one in seven jobs in our country depend on the agri-food industry. So what we say in our business has got to matter at a political level. Um, I think the, the really interesting thing with bringing post-high school kids into an environment where they're with their peers, 
where that is going to be their support group for as long as they are farming, because anybody farming nowadays knows that it can be a lonely business. So when they leave that program, they develop discussion groups, and they are much more receptive to uh, the changes they need to make to their industry. And it's been a real success story for us. Uh, as, a, as a farmer, I took over my farm in 2000, and possibly, possibly wasn't an overly positive message to a young farmer. Now kids coming out are told, you know what, you can make a go at this, you can make a living from this, and, and we need you. Well, John Dardis, it's been a joy to visit with you about your home country, also about your work in trade, and uh, may the wind always be at your back, and may you keep the price down on that Irish whiskey you're shipping out to the United States. Which means a thousand thanks. AgriPulse Open Mic has been brought to you by the crop insurance industry, providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. I'm Ken Root.